this week. Thank you for all, as has already been said, thank you for all that were helping with VBS. Um, I got to teach in the Bible room for a couple of days. And the Bible room it was a cave, and it was very, very dark. And it was really interesting watching the different students come in. Some students were like, yeah, this is awesome. And they're, they're just running around, and there's some black light, and they're exploring it. And then some of the groups were like huddled together. It is dark. And there's a big scary man here that I don't really know that well that's about to talk to me for 20 minutes. And, and, and so some of the groups, we actually had to turn on a little bit more lights, especially the younger ones, so that way they wouldn't just cry the whole time as we... We shared God's Word and taught them how to walk on water and little things like that. You can ask about that. And, and, and being afraid of the dark is sort of something we associate with children, right? Children, uh, most children, may, maybe not all, but most of mine at some point have been a little afraid of the dark. And, and we haven't even jumped out and scared them in the middle of the night and things like that to, to do that. They, they're just afraid of the dark because there's some unknown there, right? You can't see what's going on and our mind starts to play tricks on us. This morning as we come to Isaiah and we want to to give sort of big picture of Isaiah today, the title is Hope That Crushes Darkness. As I read Isaiah and as I think through even our lives today, even as adults, in many ways, we struggle with being afraid of the dark. Now, not, not literally. If I turned off the lights, you guys wouldn't run around screaming and panicking in here. But we struggle with a dark world sometimes. We struggle with when every day this week it seemed like there was a new attack in the news. It was such that we're, we're talking around the table and, and everyone's talking about different attacks. And we're like, okay, so which one was that? And which one was that? And, 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 and that can be oppressive because we're in a dark world. Darkness also can come close to home as we struggle just to deal with life. And maybe circumstances are very dark and, and we don't see a way out. And so darkness is often associated with a lack of hope, with not being able to see a way forward, not being able to see a way out of a situation, and our spirits darken. And so as we come to Isaiah, the title is Hope That Crushes Darkness. Because darkness is not permanent, and darkness has no power over hope and over light. An illustration that I saw at camp one time that I want to use to to sort of, actually, it helps us understand all of Isaiah. I need two volunteers just to hold yarn. Nothing crazy. Just um, to hold a piece of yarn. Just a couple people, one on each side. Okay, just walk that way with that. Right, one person on this side. Rosemary, go ahead and come up here. And just hold that, okay? Nice and tight. Now picture this yarn as time. And, and all of time. And picture it from creation to the new heaven and the new earth, okay? Big stretch of time, right? And so this, this may, we don't know how long, we don't know when the new heaven and earth is, but thousands, tens, tens of thousands, depending on when Christ returns, could be as little as, as um, tomorrow. Could be much future. But this is all of time. Now keep in mind, I've defined it just as time, from creation to new heaven and new earth, right? If we went from God's existence, we would just go infinitely that way and infinitely that way. And I'm not going to have you guys do that, Okay? Um, I, it would be beyond Disneyland, beyond Catalina. I mean, it, we'd just go on and on and on. Now, here's the thing. We come to Isaiah, and let's say Isaiah is somewhere around here. And there were things happening in the children of Israel, and this isn't going to color well, but you get the idea. There were things happening that were just very, very dark in Isaiah. And that's actually probably a little bit too big. We'd come down a little bit more. 
And the book of Isaiah is written to a people that are seeing this much of history and are struggling with this much of history. The darkness, by and large, was caused by themselves, their own sin. They walked away from God, and so it's a very dark time. And and then they go into exile, and, and they're taken into captivity. And they're trying to live through this darkness, and Isaiah is going to try to show them that God is doing something far more than this little, tiny piece of yarn. Does that make sense? You know, for us, we're somewhere over here. And our lives on the stretch of just time that God is working within may be that big. And maybe we're going through some trials. Maybe we're going through some hardships. But can we define the whole line by this little piece? No, we try to, but we can't. It's like watching the two-minute trailer of Justice League that came out yesterday. Some of you are into that kind of thing. Yeah, there we go. And you now critique the whole movie, say it's an awful movie based on that two minutes. That would be silly, right? Because you've only... And this is even sillier because it's a little dot. Now we know, and Isaiah is going to talk about that. this, that right in the middle is the real reason why we can have hope. And the red's not going to quite work. But in the middle of all of history is the cross. And Christ's death and His resurrection. And that's why the people in darkness there have, have seen a great light, Isaiah says. That's why us, when we go through difficulty here... If we can get our heads out of this little spot on the string and understand that God is doing something much greater than that, now we have hope, real hope, genuine hope, based in the cross of Christ. Based in the fact that darkness has already been crushed. And real hope from God crushes darkness. Hold it for just a minute more. A couple of things. Actually, I just want you to know. <laughs> Keep in mind that this is a, a stretch of history that if we had to summarize the whole thing, a working definition that I use of the whole Bible is God redeeming a fallen creation back to himself. And so at the beginning of time over here, we have Adam and Eve, and real early on, they disobey God and they fall. And there's darkness really the whole rest of the way. Ups and downs, sometimes it's a little gray, but sin is in the world. At the end here, God will finally completely judge darkness and sin and create a new heaven and a new earth that goes on forever. So I just have you walk. No, don't. Isaiah is all about viewing life through this lens rather than this lens. That makes sense? You guys can just set it down. We'll leave it here. And just a a thank you, ladies. Give them a hand. And so we can say, oh, no, it's dark. Oh, no, I don't know what's happening with culture. Oh, no, I don't know if I'll get a job. Oh, no, I don't know if dot, 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 fill in the blank. But Isaiah is going to give us hope because it draws our attention off of self to something far, far greater than self. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1. And today is an introduction day, and so this is sort of Ron's classroom day, a little bit different than, than normal, and, and in a couple of weeks we're going to dive into the text itself. But it's really important when you study Scripture to understand context. We want to understand what books were written to address, what context they were written to, to address, what situations, because then when we understand that, 
we now understand the meaning of the text and how to apply it to today. And so today is giving us some context to understand Isaiah, one of the, the larger books in the Bible, a little overwhelming to sort of process the whole thing. But Isaiah 1.1, and, and we'll hit some of the, the pertinent details here, like author and setting and, and date and things like that. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, when he, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's the opening. That's the introduction that introduces us to, to a few things. Number one, the author is Isaiah. And we'll talk about uh, authorship a little bit later as we go. There's, there's some people that say, well, Isaiah couldn't have written the whole thing. But, but we hold that uh, Isaiah is the author because it says Isaiah is the author. If, if he's lying, then this isn't the word of God. It's, it's really that simple. Now, we can, we can also look at the text and we can understand that it actually makes sense that Isaiah is the author, even though it's a huge text that spans many years. But picture this. Picture Isaiah as an older man, and, and this is a little bit of conjecture, but Isaiah looks to be a collection of his sermons or a collection of his speeches or in his later ministry when he, when he was under persecution, some of his writings. And so picture him toward the end of his life sitting down and talking with some of his disciples that were following him and saying, you know what, I just want to collect this all into one volume because God has been at work through all of this. And so he sits down and he starts to collect, well, God showed me this in the year of King Uzziah when he died, and and God showed me this, and God showed me this. And um, one, one person I was talking to said, Isaiah is sort of like a hymnal. You get different hymns on each chapter. And, and so it's a collection of Isaiah's teaching. It's not something he sat and wrote in one sitting. That'd be a writer's cramp there. But a collection of his teaching over the scope of his life, which is why it's a little hard to digest. Imagine the, so, some of you writing your whole life down in one book. All the important things that God has taught you in your life in one book. And that's a little bit of what Isaiah is doing too, but what God doing here, but what God is trying to teach the children of Israel. The name Isaiah, just interestingly enough, it, it's the theme of the book, but his name means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And if you had to summarize the book, God redeeming creation, a fallen creation back to himself as the Bible, well, Isaiah is the same theme. Yahweh is salvation. Sometimes Isaiah is called the Prince of Prophets couple theories there. Some people think that that's because he was born of royal blood. And we don't know that, but it looks like that might be true. He, he had access to kings. He had access to king's courts. And so somehow he was running in those circles. But probably we call him the Prince of Prophets because the book of Isaiah is one of the grandest prophetic books in the Old Testament. It's a sweep. It's a grand sweep of God's story all the way from creation to the new heavens and new earth. There are some of the most majestic passages about God in Isaiah that you are familiar with. You may not know it, but you are familiar with much of Isaiah. And then there's parts of Isaiah that you've probably never read unless you've done a Bible reading program. Some have argued that the book of Isaiah is the most theologically significant book in the Old Testament. And so we want to mine its riches. And the way we're going to do that is is we're not going to spend 10 years on Isaiah. We could... But we're going to take it a couple chapters at a time in some of the logical chunks and give an overview of that chapter and then zoom in and mine certain things out of that passages, out of that passage. 
Just a couple of other details about Isaiah, because some of you like those kinds of things. He was probably married. Um, He mentions his wife in the book and had at least two sons. Now, it's interesting because he named his sons as part of his prophetic ministry. So one of his sons was Mahir Shalaj Hazbaz, which some of you that are pregnant, consider that. It might be a, might be a rememberable name. It meant quick to plunder, swift to the spoil. And part of what Isaiah is doing is talking about the upcoming plunder and exile of Judah. So he named his son quick to plunder. His other son was Shir Jashub, and it meant a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return because he's going to talk about hope even in dark times and that salvation is coming. If I had to summarize sort of Isaiah as as I've read through the book several times, Isaiah was in awe of God. He was in awe of God and he loved the nation of Israel, specifically Judah that he was writing to. He often uses terms like my people. And finally, if I had to describe Isaiah, he's a man that hated sin. Hated sin. We have to distinguish a couple things with the book of Isaiah. And, and like I said, Isaiah is this huge book and there's all kinds of things to digest. And so today I'm sort of picking what to throw out in the fire hose and hopefully things that will help us understand Isaiah. But we have to separate the ministry of Isaiah from the time that he was writing to. And, and we'll, we'll explain that because his ministry was during a certain point through the four kings that are listed in verse 1 there. And that's when he lived and taught. And he wrote to that time, but also we'll find that he wrote to certain times in the future. I guess in the timeline, that's his time and this is the future. Um, And so we have to distinguish when he lived versus who he was writing to. And, And in your notes, we'll get there. But let's start with when he lived. And it mentions that he lived during the kings, um, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And so I put charts in your, um, in your notes. I know the one on the left is probably a little hard to read. I, I tried to take as much of the page as I could to make it larger, but that's a chart of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Now keep in mind, by this point, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom have divided. There's been a schism there. And so we have the northern kingdom over here. Sorry, guys, the northern kingdom didn't fare too well um, earlier than Judah. And we have the southern kingdom over here. And so they have different kings. Sometimes they're friendly to each other. A lot of times they're not. And so Isaiah is ministering to the southern kingdom, to Judah over here. In your timeline, I put kings or I I picked one that had kings of Israel and kings of Judah so we can understand um, some of the overlap as we see names. This is one of those pieces of paper you might want to keep in your Bible as we study Isaiah because we're going to hit different parts on this timeline. But if you look at the upper part of that timeline, and I also wrote it out in text form in case your eyes are like mine and you can't read that little chart. Um, Is the chart up there? Yeah, okay. And so if you look at Uzziah, it's, it's partway through the, um, the Judean kings at the top. It's a big stretch of time. And Uzziah is a time where there was relative peace in Israel, um, mostly because Assyria that was ruling all of the known world at that point in time, they were going through kings really quickly and there was turmoil. And so they didn't have times to go beat up the little countries around them. And so there was this time of peace that Israel was experiencing. And, and Uzziah goes from about 792 to 740. Keep in mind these dates are all approximate. 
and um, different books had different dates, and I, I, I picked ones that were, um, seemed to be a little bit of a consensus. Isaiah starts right at the end of Uzziah, okay? Now, he goes through the next few kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Probably his ministry went through Manasseh as well, but Manasseh did not love God. Manasseh hated God, and so if Isaiah was still alive and still ministering, it would have been more in secret. But he had open ministry with the four kings that are listed there. So open ministry at least 740 to 701 B.C. Remember, this is before Christ, so the dates go go down instead of up as, as we go forward. A number of extra biblical accounts say that Isaiah ended up being martyred by Manasseh. Um, in Hezekiah's son, that he was sawn in two somewhere after 687 B.C. We don't know that for sure, but um, tradition would hold to that. And so that's the range that Isaiah ministered in. A little bit later when we talk about setting, you'll see what's going on and some of the political intrigue. And there is so much going on in the world at this point that I'm like, ah, I wish I could share it all, but we, we have to end by five. Um, and so we'll just get, get highlights of that. Before we jump into that, I also want to mention a couple words about prophecy. Isaiah is a book of prophecies, one of the major prophets, and the, the largest book on prophecy that we have, or the most quoted in the New Testament. But prophecy is one of those things that we have to understand a little bit of how to deal with. Sir Winston Churchill once asked um, to give the qualifications of a person needed in order to succeed in politics. Pertinent this year. And he replied, it's the ability to foretell what is going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, and next year. And to have the ability afterward to explain why it didn't happen. He understood you can't foretell the future. And so you better be really good at spin and saying why it didn't happen. But here's the thing. With prophecy, inspired prophecy, it is the inspired word of God. And if he says it, it will happen. And so when we think of prophecy, there's two aspects to prophecy. And you've heard us talk about this before, but it's good to remember. Prophecy includes both forthtelling and foretelling. And um, forthtelling and foretelling. The difference is forthtelling is speaking God's word to a group of people, to their face, basically, or to contemporaries. It, it might be some of the prophets went to kings or went to people and said, you are in sin. God is going to judge you unless you change. And usually the king would kill them or put them into prison or something like that. And so it was a difficult thing. But forthtelling is speaking God's truth to a group of people. And we're going to see that in Isaiah, especially in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. And then there's also forthtelling, which is telling the future. Or foretelling, sorry. Foretelling, which is telling the future. That's usually what we think of as prophecy. And, and God sometimes uses prophecy to do that. In fact, we're going to see that in chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah. That'll be more foretelling what's going to happen. We see that in Revelation. We see that in the second half of Daniel. We see that a number of times. And so prophecy always, or not always, but can include both. Isaiah, it does include both. Foretelling, though, is complicated because we're reading something that was written 20... almost 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, 2,700 years ago. And it was written to a people in a place at a time. And we're reading it 2,700 years later, say, okay, how does this apply to me? First question is, how did it apply to them? 
What did they understand it to mean? Now in Isaiah, because he goes all the way to the new heaven and new earth, it applies to us too. And he's going to talk about our future. He's going to talk about our salvation, the hope that we have that will crush darkness. But we always want to say, how did they understand it? The other challenge is is prophecy often uses figurative language and and sweeping overviews rather than specific details. You know, you think of the... the, um, the people that tell your future and they say, someday in your future, I see you meeting somebody. Almost everybody. Now, now prophecy isn't quite that bad. That's how we've, we've perverted this idea of being able to tell the future. But Isaiah is going to give grand sweeping views of what's going to happen. I, I think, and, and, and rather than, he doesn't give dates. On this date, this will happen. And on this date, this will happen with, with one exception. Uh, One author, Hartman, said, The children of God need encouragement regarding the future, but do not need to know with absolute precision everything that is going to take place. Sometimes I ask the question, do you really want to know every day of the rest of your life? If you ever, oh, maybe. No, when you think about it, no, no. There's some days that I just want to trust God with. And, and not know what's happening. And that's a little bit of why prophets don't give all the details. Could God do that? Absolutely. He doesn't because he's doing this as a way to encourage us, not overwhelm us with the details. One of the illustrations I like to use um, for understanding prophecy are mountains and mountain ranges. And yes, I know some of you recognize where this is. Um, but you see different mountain ranges here, right? You see hills here in the front. And then you see a mountain range in the back. And prophecy sort of looks like this. We are, we are given a picture looking off in the distance. And we see some hills. We see some mountain ranges. And it's hard to tell what's what. Can you tell me the distance between these hills and these mountains? In this picture, it's a little easier. And those of you that have been there, don't. It's hard to tell the difference. There's actually a lot of plains and, and just flat desert between these hills and these mountains. Now, which of these mountains is the highest? Someone point. Okay, you pointed there. Uh, (laughs) Doesn't that one look the highest? Do you know that's not the highest mountain there? What was that? The one behind. This one right here is actually the highest mountain there. For those of you that don't know, that's Mount Whitney. Now, what's really cool is it's just a straight shot from there to there, right? (laughs) Some of you have hiked it before and you're like, you're nuts. No, there is actually a valley there, a huge valley. And we hike up this valley for 24 hours all night and pretend it's fun. And um, to get to the top up here, there's there's a huge valley between mountain ranges that we can't see. Now, in prophecy, prophecy works like this. We're given multiple events, and it's all in one chapter, and we're like, oh, look, it's all going to happen on this date. And and that's not the intention. There's these valleys in between and these these crevices, and, and we never know because God... Sometimes you'll see the day of the Lord mentioned. And the day of the Lord is all of the events of the end of time, usually. It's God's judgment on sin. Sometimes it's down to a specific events, but it's this broad range of events that may span, span the day of the Lord may span a thousand seven years. And so we don't see all the valleys and we have to understand that. Now, is the picture worth seeing? Yeah, it's beautiful. 
because we see God's grandeur in this. And with prophecy, that's one of the purposes of prophecy is to see God's power, his supremacy, his grandeur. He is over all things and sovereign. And the other thing that we'll see with prophecy is prophecy often is fulfilled multiple times. There can be a close fulfillment of prophecy like the hills here that they experienced. And in Isaiah, that's return from exile. But Isaiah just goes right into talking about the Messiah and the servant and and Jesus and how we have real hope for all eternity. And so he jumps from here to here with the same prophecy. Make sense? Like I said, Ron's classroom today. So, So hopefully we understand a little bit about prophecy. Let's jump to the book of Isaiah because we are quickly running out of time. Um, Isaiah, if you think of Isaiah, think of the Bible in miniature. If you, if you had a Reader's Digest condensed version of the Bible, maybe it would be Isaiah. Without all the narrative, but with the grand scheme of what God is doing. And so Isaiah really is God re- redeeming creation back to himself as well. Um, interestingly enough, Isaiah it can be divided into two books or two parts. I hesitate to use the word books because recently some scholars have used that to say it was written by different people and at different times. And so I think parts is a little better. Um, The first part is 39 chapters, 1 through 39. And the predominant theme in the first um, 39 chapters is judgment of sin. Judgment. You're probably thinking, oh, great, I'm going to skip the first 39 chapters of this series. Second half of the, but, but hope is not missing there. He interweaves his themes so marvelously. Second um, part or the second book is chapters 40 through 66. That's the book of hope or salvation. It's the answer. One Jewish rabbi said it was the book of consolation. And they were really written to two different groups of people to, to be read at different times and to help people at different points. And we said with this, we have references in Isaiah all the way from creation to the new heaven and new earth. We have verses like 42.5, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. And he's talking about creation there. But then at the end, we get to our future and the hope that we have of a future. And so because it's the the Bible in miniature and because the central point of that hope is the Messiah and the coming King that is going to die on the cross and be persecuted, sometimes Isaiah is called the fifth gospel. And in fact, we toyed with with the title of the gospel according to Isaiah because it really does capture, like no other Old Testament book, it captures the scope of what Jesus is doing in all of history. Just some fun facts for those of you that likes facts. Along with Psalms, it is the most quoted book of the Old Testament in the New Testament. It is the most quoted book by name, and it is the most prophetic book quoted. All but one verse of Isaiah 53 is quoted in the New Testament. We're going to get there. Isaiah 53 is awesome. 79 times Revelation alludes to Isaiah. More than any other Old Testament book that it talks about. And, and Revelation talks about a lot. Paul quotes or alludes to Isaiah at least 80 times. These are big numbers. Isaiah is valuable and important to understand. Even Jesus' own ministry, when he started his public ministry, do you remember? He, he steps into the synagogue and opens the scroll. That's Isaiah. Isaiah 61. 
And he reads, today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we read that in Luke 4. And he's using Isaiah to say, it was pointing to me. That center point, that red spot, that salvation, that was me. And so there's hope. I'll spend a little bit of time on setting an audience. This was the hardest section because there's so much going on in history at this time that I wanted to cover, and you'll have to read. Grab a a good history book, or I can give you some commentary intros, but I'm going to try to narrow it down to just what's important to Isaiah because there's several different sections of history that we have to understand. Part one of the book, the the part on judgment, chapters 1 through 39, this was written to the people that were contemporary with Isaiah, the people he was ministering to. And so this is what we would call pre-exile era. And what that means is we know now, looking back at history, that Israel, the northern kingdom, was taken away into exile by Assyria. Sorry, you guys, but you now are with the Assyrians, and it's not good. And then a little bit later, the southern kingdom was taken away to Babylon, and that's not good either. And so that's called the exile, and the southern kingdom was in exile for 70 years. Now, they didn't know that at the time, but they were in exile 70 years, and then God brought them back into the land. And so when we say pre-exile, that means before any of this happened. Now, Isaiah, is, is, he's writing as you guys are being taken away. During this time when Assyria is capturing people and, and torturing people and killing people, and he sees all this happen in the northern kingdom, which incidentally is only about six miles from Jerusalem. He's close to the border. And so this is the time that Isaiah is writing. That's, that's part one of the book, is written to those people. Part two is, is written to people that are in exile. And so that's why it, it really shifts, and you're going to see that as we study it, it really shifts to, okay, instead of change your life, something bad's going to happen, it's something bad has happened, change your life. And have hope in the Lord. And so really the second half is much more about comfort. And hope. And it's written to these people, especially to Judah, these people 150 years later than when Isaiah lived. The last 10 chapters of the book, 11 chapters of the book, actually look like it was written then to these people after they came back into the land. And so we have the the audience is set to all these different time frames. We have 740 to 700 B.C. when when Isaiah lived and and the pre-exile people he's writing to. And then we have during the exile, which is 150 years later, probably 606 to 536, somewhere in there. And then post-exile is after 535. And and so this this is the question people have said. How can this be? Isaiah didn't live 250 years. And so their logical conclusion, and it's based on false ideas about God, their logical conclusion is it must be different authors at different times and they wrote it and they pretended to be Isaiah. They never even consider that maybe God knows the whole timeline. Maybe God has written the whole timeline and it's his story and nothing's going to change that. And so that's why I have no problem holding to an Isaiah authorship because God was telling him what was going to happen 150 years later. He was telling him what was going to happen 200 years later because he knew the people needed to hear that. You know, the the, the first 39 chapters are all about God's judgment, his sovereignty, his supremacy over the nation. If you guys get taken away to Babylon now and you're sitting in jail or you're sitting being tortured or whatever it is, do you think God is supreme? 
No, you're starting to question the first 39 chapters. Now, if you had read the whole book and it said you will be taken into exile and this is going to happen, now your, your mind, it's blowing, right? Because God predicted this and now God is still sovereign and supreme because he said this would happen. And then you read the end of the story where it says you're going to come home and you have real hope because you trust God. And so this was all written by Isaiah. But it was written with God telling people ahead of time what was going to happen. So part one in five minutes or less. About 740 to 700 B.C. we need to understand. If you think part one, write Assyrians. Part two, write Babylonians. Okay, that's sort of the, the big picture. The Assyrians were an empire from about 900 B.C. to 609 B.C. So about almost 300 years. They were brutal They were in control of the known world at the time. And like I said, there was a time of peace with both Israel and Judah. But then about 745 B.C., a guy named Tiglath-Pileser comes to power. That guy. That's a Polaroid. And he comes to power and he is motivated, he is aggressive, and he is going to return Assyria to their glory days. And so he starts to take over countries again, all over the place. There were those three weaker kings in front of him. He was tired of it. He took over and he was going to assert his authority through might and through the sword. If you go to the next slide on the map, because we have to have maps on introduction days. The Assyrian Empire is based up here. And in fact, if you look at this big picture, the, the lighter color, this was all the Assyrian Empire of the time. So huge. It was centered up here in a little town called Nineveh. We talked about Nineveh before, and we talked about the brutality there and why Jonah was so angry to have to go to Nineveh. And so now they start asserting power again. Babylon at this point was someone under the Assyrian, and and they were sort of pesky. Every opportunity they had, they tried to rebel. And so a change of king in Assyria, they tried to rebel. And all all this political intrigue. And so he starts by coming out here and just banging on them for a while and getting them back in submission. His next goal, his next target was Egypt because Egypt was sort of a jewel to get. Now, the interesting thing is if you're coming from Assyria to Egypt, you have Israel here in the middle. And so Israel often became sort of the the thing to to destroy on the way to Egypt, um, the whipping boy, so to speak. And so Tiglath-Pileser is going to come down and and he's going to take out Israel. Now the story goes, and this is, this is now into Isaiah because Isaiah addresses this. Um, Judah, the king of Judah at this point now is Ahaz. And the king of Israel here and Syria, they get together and say, we're going to stop Assyria, which is sort of stupid um, but because they're little tiny countries. Assyria has this big, massive army. We're going to stop Assyria. And so they contact Ahaz down here in, the, the, in Judah, and they say, we'd like you to join us. Join our coalition. We're going to stop Assyria. Ahaz now is, he's troubled. Because if I join them and go against Assyria, I know what's going to happen. I die. And, and, but yet he's struggling. Do I join Assyria? They're evil. They're, they're, they're not from Yahweh. And Isaiah goes to him and says, you need to not, not join anyone. You need to trust God. Trust God. And Ahaz ignores Isaiah, and he picks Assyria. 
And so he contacts down here, he contacts Assyria and says, I'm going to give you lots of money every year. We're going to pay you tribute. We're going to become a, a subservient state to you if you'll protect us. So as soon as these guys heard this, and this is probably more history than you ever want to know, as soon as these guys heard this, they came down to defeat Ahaz to get him out of there and put their own guy in power. And so you have the northern kingdom attacking the southern kingdom. Nice job, guys. And, and they're doing this. And, but then Assyria comes in and starts attacking and wiping out up here and, and protects them. And it looks like all is good, except he disobeyed God, didn't trust God, and now is, is in servitude to Assyria, which got old really, really fast. One of the authors, Oswald, um, said it's like, like, ask, like acting like a mouse, asking a cat to help it against another cat. Well, when the other cat's gone, you're, you're food. You're next. And so that all happened at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. Jumping ahead because we are really running out of time. About 722, about 18 years later, um, Israel falls. The Syrians take them over, wipe them out take them back, disperse them throughout their kingdom, kill most of them. And so Judah is left alone. About this time, um, we have Tiglath-Pelazar that had died. Another guy came into power. Hezekiah, one of the great kings of Judah, comes into power. Now, he didn't always do great things, but he did some great things. He tried to follow God. At times, he didn't trust God. And so he decided, I've had enough of Assyria. Let's make an alliance with Egypt. (laughs) It's another cat. And, and soon enough, though, he realizes this wasn't right and he's going to trust God. Now, because of that rebellion, though, um, and he, he found a good time about 702, 701, Sennacherib now is king of, of Assyria. Um, Hezekiah stops paying tribute to Assyria. And for whatever reason, Assyria didn't like that. And so Assyria... They come and again, they beat up on Babylon for a while and get them back in submission because they had come up, they had risen up again. And then they come over here and they, they begin to take out Judah, take out about 46 cities of Judah. They come to two left, Lachish and Jerusalem. Some of you that have been, been with us to Israel, you went to both of those places. And he comes to Lachish and sieges Lachish and they hold out for a while. Eventually he builds a siege ramp and takes out Lachish. And Hezekiah is in Jerusalem and he realizes the writing's on the wall. Now, now Assyria, they're, they're still, they're really after Egypt, but you can't leave an enemy stronghold on your rear, rear flank, right? Uh, you just can't, let alone this, this, these people had rebelled against them. And so he comes and he, he besieges Jerusalem. But Hezekiah at this point learns to trust God. And, and this is the time that Hezekiah's tunnel was built. But Hezekiah trusts God, and in the end, Sennacherib does not take Jerusalem. Man, there's so much more I want to say. It's, it's, it's incredible history. It didn't happen. And in history, we don't know why. All of a sudden, Sennacherib left, went back to Nineveh, and had a nice little life in Nineveh. But Isaiah 37 says this, By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into the city, declares Yahweh. For I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. That'd do it. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. 
Isn't it great when the Bible tells us what history can't? And so God protected Hezekiah and Jerusalem because they trusted in him. Part one, the first 39 chapters are are written to Judah during this time. And the warning is, if you don't change and trust God, I'm talking to you because you guys are Judah, but it applies. If you don't change and trust God, you will be destroyed. And they had evidence of this happening all around them. We get to chapter 40 and the second part, hope and salvation. And now this is written to a people that have been taken into exile. It's very different. And we know from history, there's a hundred years there of, of trying to give to Assyria what they want, but then eventually some things happen in Assyria. They lose power. Babylon, some guy named Nebuchadnezzar rises to power in Babylon. Does it see how it all fits together? And he develops this, this massive army. And he was sort of a one-hit wonder. Babylon lasted through Nebuchadnezzar's reign a little bit on, on the end of it, but that's about it. He took out the Assyrians. And so you see the Babylonian empire is this purple section. And one of the things that he did is he came to Jerusalem and he started overthrowing Jerusalem. And there were three different kinds he visited, and, and, and I don't have time to get into that. He took Daniel during one of those times, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This all ties together. And eventually Jerusalem was lost, and people went into exile for 70 years. And the second part of Isaiah is written to them while in Babylon to give them hope, to say God hasn't forgotten you. If you repent, God will honor that. You will be back in Jerusalem. And then finally in 535, sure enough, they did. God keeps his word. Let me go through these themes just really quickly as we close. You're going to see these throughout Isaiah. Some of these become sort of our our gauge each week for what can we learn. The first one, God revealing himself, his attributes and his glory. Almost every chapter of Isaiah, God reveals a new name or a new attribute or who he is and how powerful he is. Isaiah is the story of God. It's his story and it's beautiful. It's wonderful. And so we have sections like Isaiah 40. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Lift up it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Israel, Behold your God. He comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with them. His recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Oh, what beautiful passages about God written to Judah in exile to give them hope. Second theme that we'll see is God's sovereignty and supremacy over all. Yahweh is Lord of all of history and Lord of all the nations. And I hope Isaiah screams that out to us. There is no one like him. We sang that this morning. There is no God like him. He uses Assyria to chastise Judah in the land. He uses Babylon to take them out. Because of discipline, he uses Cyrus to bring them back. The kings are just in his hand. Since God is sovereign for us, if we really understand this as we study Isaiah, since he is sovereign and supreme over all nations and empires, can he handle my life? Yeah, I'm hoping that we see the big and then our little dot, we say, okay, I can trust him with my dot. Third theme, holiness and righteousness. God is holy and we are to match his character and act righteously. 
At least 25 times in Isaiah, we're going to see the phrase, Holy One of Israel used over and over. We sang Holy, Holy, Holy this morning out of Isaiah 6. And Isaiah is a story of God's holiness, man not being able to meet God's holiness, and so the servant Messiah comes to give us his holiness and his righteousness. And so all through this, the fourth theme there, we see judgment and hope. Even in chapter 1 that Pastor Andrew is going to talk about in a couple weeks, judgment and hope, it just flips back and forth between them. Because it's God judges sin, but through His Son we have hope of salvation. To the ones in captivity. God has judged you, you're in captivity, but you have hope, the little hill, the the front hill, you have hope of being restored to the land. Number five, trust in the Lord rather than self. Trust in the Lord rather than self. Ahaz and Hezekiah both had opportunities, and we're going to see that throughout the book. And number six, ultimate redemption is from the servant Messiah. Ultimate redemption is from the servant Messiah. We're going to see the servant king must suffer. The Messiah must be crucified. But he redeems a fallen world back to himself through that. So as we go through every week, what can we learn about God? What can we learn about what His expectations are? What can we learn about His grace and His salvation? And how can we walk with that sovereign God today? Let's pray. Lord God, oh, Your Word is rich. There is so much to uncover and unpack. And Lord, we've just scratched the surface today. I pray it gives us enough of a background to, to study Isaiah and put it in perspective. Challenge us with this book, Lord, and ch- convict us with your holiness. Challenge us to live righteous lives, Lord, but comfort us with your grace and help us to run to the servant Messiah and see your salvation, Lord. Help us to be in awe of your character and your attributes. Help us to be different people in seven months at the end of Isaiah because of your word. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.